Cast Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f- f- put that in. I don't. So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going into the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball, and from the baseball angle, I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this, he sucks. Well, he is out. He's out. Yes, Brady is out. Look at, look at this. Brady is out. And uh, Damon Mack. I'm not here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. This can run cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in the hundred years at the present time. Sell the team. Oh, yeah. This is the Passball Show. John Pielli here with you. Another Saturday morning. ton of stuff to get into in regards to Major League Baseball. Uh, I've been interviewed, and I'm going to play in a little bit with former Major League infielder Tom Herr. But, of course, this week comes with another sad passing of a Major League Baseball grade. And this time it's uh, many-time batting champion and baseball Hall of Famer Tony Gwynn at such a young age of 54. And if you caught my show last week, we did a little retrospect for the, the life and the baseball career of Bob Welsh, who passed away. And, of course, the week before was the passing of baseball lifer Don Zimmer. And it's sad, you know, anytime you come across something like this, especially a guy in Tony Gwynn's case that's so young, but within a second hour, we're going to get into that a little bit because I got some things. Uh, I make a case that if you don't really follow your baseball history, you may think Tony Gwynn was just another Hall of Famer and is up there with the other guys that got 3,000 hits that played around the same time. And uh, Tony Gwynn, to me, as a baseball historian and a guy that has followed the game and analyzed the game for uh, you know many, many years, he was more than that. And you can make a case that he was the best hitter, the best pure hitter since Ted Williams. So we're going to get into that in the second hour. Um, We're also going to talk a little bit about a couple of the high profile starts that you've seen from guys like Nelson Cruz and Michael Morse and what, what their implications of the future and what it means for their potential next contract and a couple other things like that. But, um, you know, I teased it right at the beginning. Uh, just a reminder, tweet at me at John underscore PL as we keep the program interactive. And yeah, if you haven't yet, check out my website, johnpiele.com. And of course, for the MTR listeners, my show last week did not air. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, if you're a, a passball show listener, you didn't get a chance to listen to my interview with Hall of Fame right-hand pitcher and U.S. Congressman and Senator Jim Bunning. But I do have that uh, interview available on my website, johnpla.com. Just check it out, uh, the show archives page. You can listen to the show in, in its entirety. 
And I also had a chance to speak with former Major League outfielder Dave Gallagher, who played for many different teams, now runs a baseball academy over here in New Jersey. Um, we got in a lot of good stuff about some things going on with the kids and his playing career and his experiences uh, throughout Major League Baseball. So if you haven't got a chance to check that out, check it out. It's uh, show number 136 on my archives page, and both of the interviews will be available on my uh, PBS interview page, which is also on johnpla.com. So um, into this week, I'm going to play an interview I recorded with longtime Major League second baseman Tom Herr. And Tom, of course, was uh, signed as an amateur free agent by the St. Louis Cardinals in 1974. At the same time, he was contemplating going to school, going to college at the University of Delaware. He ends up taking a pro contract and after a couple of years in the minor leagues, makes his major league debut with the St. Louis Cardinals in 1979. And of course, over the course of his career, he gets a chance to play in three World Series, winning the World Series with the Cardinals in 1982 in a long seven-game series against the Milwaukee Brewers, and then losing that tough series in 1985 against the Kansas City Royals, known as the Denkinger Series with the Don Deckinger blowing call in game number six, which ends up deciding the game, and then the Royals winning game seven. And, of course, the Cardinals also made the World Series in 1987, where they lost another tough seven-game series against the Minnesota Twins. But uh, Tom was the last National League player to have less than 10 home runs in a season and drive in over 100 runs. He did that in 1985, playing second base for the Cardinals, where he very often batted number three in the lineup behind Vince Coleman and Willie McGee. And, of course, Ozzie Smith was up at the top of the order sometimes. But a very different lineup led by manager Whitey Herzog as it relied a lot on speed. Of course, uh, the defense that the players played behind the the great pitching staff that they had uh, certainly helped out. And, you know, a team that didn't really rely on a lot of power but was able to score a lot of runs. And, of course, the three World Series appearances in a five-year stretch is certainly an indication of how good of a team they were. So hopefully you get a chance to enjoy this spot with Tom Herr, who also played for the Minnesota Twins, the Philadelphia Phillies, New York Mets, and the San Francisco Giants, which you'll find out that uh, Tom was a very big fan of the San Francisco Giants growing up, and it turns out he gets a chance to finish his career with the team he grew up rooting for. So hopefully you guys enjoy this spot. With Tom Herr, like I said, tweet at me. We keep the program interactive. John underscore Pielli. Right now I'm joined by former Major League second baseman Tom Herr. Tom, this is John Pielli over in New Jersey. I appreciate you having a couple minutes. All right, Tom. If you can, just uh, a little, a little bit with the audience about what got you into baseball, and uh, you know how you ended up getting up through you know high school and you know, college to the day you were signed. Uh, well, I mean, I was like a lot of other kids growing up in the uh, '60s. You know, we we had uh, ride our bikes around the neighborhoods and pick up uh, pick up as many guys as we could and go find a parking lot somewhere and set up. You know, set up bases and uh, you know just play. You know, we played the game and and uh, you know we played in the back of uh, church parking lots or out on the street or make fields out in the uh, you know make sure field out in the wheat field or whatever. And uh, you know, just learned how to play. I, I grew up with uh, you know a, a group of friends that you know really loved baseball and and uh, you know we.
you know, different age group leagues and, and until you get up into uh, high school and then if you're good enough you can make the high school team and play there. Yeah, now was there was there a time that you remember that you realized that you know you, you had a gift that you, that you you were really able to play the game well enough that possibly a professional career could have been on the horizon? Yeah, I mean I was uh, you know I would say at a pretty young age I was uh, you know I knew that I was a good player and uh, you know always had uh, good eye hand coordination with. For not only baseball but other sports, uh, other team sports played uh, basketball and football, and uh, you know, just I mean, you know, always uh, seemed to be able to uh, compete at a high level. And uh, you know, my 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 raw skills were very well suited to baseball because I would you know, had a good body type for a baseball player, and I could run pretty good and. here with Tom Herr. Now, so talk a little bit about, uh, you know, when you were signed by the St. Louis Cardinals, because if I'm not mistaken, you were um, you, you were committed to go to the University of Delaware at the time, so it was probably a tough decision that you had to face around that time, right? Uh, yeah, it, it really wasn't a tough decision for me. I, you know, my heart was, uh, yeah, I was about Growing up, I wanted to play a professional sport. I didn't really care what it was. Um, you know, basketball might have been my best sport in high school, but um, you know, when uh, I got involved with uh, American Legion baseball uh, over the summers, and in Pennsylvania they had a series of all-star games that uh, get pretty heavily scouted. And you know, after I graduated from high school in '74, I was I was involved in the Legion All-Star Games, and uh, you know, by the end of the summer, uh, as I progressed through those games, I had uh, probably a half a dozen uh, major league teams that were that were interested in me, and uh, you know, the Cardinals were one of those teams, and they they happened to make the best offer to me, so I, that's how I ended up signing with the Cardinals. Yeah, no, of course. Uh, you know, now, did you did did you uh, contemplate going to college at all? I mean, I know you said you were looking to play play ball professionally, but uh, was was that something that you had thought about? Maybe uh, you know moving on, or did you did you end up finishing college? No, I didn't. I mean, I still went, and because uh, Monday was late in the summer, so the uh, you know, season was already over, the minor league season. So I went ahead and. Uh, and went to Delaware for the fall semester, and then 
Again, John Pielli here with Tom Hur. Now, hey, you make your debut in 1979. Um, you know, it's like a young Cardinals team. There's some younger players, but there's also some older players there. Uh, tell, tell us a little bit about your experience being on a major league field for the first time. Was it was it everything that you imagined it would be from when, when you were a kid dreaming to be a baseball player? Yeah, I mean, it was great. I mean, I, I, being in the same dugout as Lou Brock and, and guys like And then, uh, you know, about a year or so later, Whitey Herzog takes over as a manager. And through time, you become uh, the reg- regular second baseman for the Cardinals. Was uh, w- was there anything that you, you that you remember from Whitey Herzog himself that made you a better ball player? Or what do, what do, you, what do you have to say about having a chance to play for Whitey? Well, Whitey's style was uh, really, really suited my game. You know, he, he was a... Uh, 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 1981 is the, the strike-shortened season. The Cardinals end up finishing second in both half of the seasons. As you get into the offseason of 1981 going into 1982, did you feel something special going on? Did you feel that you, you were you were a part of a team that could have competed and you know inevitably win the World Series? Yeah, we really felt, uh, we felt kind of cheated that year because we, you know, we had the best overall record in our division, but we finished second in, in the, in, you know, they created two halves of that season, and, and we felt like, you know, that was kind of a real incentive for us coming into the 82 season, you know, we felt like, you know, we were the best team, and, and you know, we really wanted to prove that again, so, you know, in, in a way, uh, getting, you know, not, not getting in a, a playoff opportunity in 81, I think kind of was a, a catalyst for us to 
do the least stay focused the following year and, and achieve that goal. Now, looking back at that team in 1982, of course, there was a lot of very good players, whether it was Keith Hernandez, uh, of course, Ozzy Smith, George Hendrick. Uh, was was there one player that that, that the team kind of went through as far as the veteran, the leader, maybe the, the guy that's been around a while that's kind of a little bit of an influence on the younger players? Well, we, we had a really good mix of, of a veteran and, and youth. You know, Ozzy and I were... Uh, early stages of our careers, and, and Keith was kind of, uh, you know, probably in the middle of a, a very fine career. Ken Overfell was was early in his career, but then we had older, uh, established uh, players like George Hendrick and and Daryl Porter and Gene Tennis, and of course we had Bruce Suter that uh, you know who was kind of untouchable at that uh, stage of his career, and. Um, yeah, just a real good mix of uh, of uh, the useful exuberance and the better knowledge and, and knowing how to win. Uh, you know, Team Tennis had been probably a great Oakland team that had won multiple World Series, and you know, so his, his influence was great on that team. And, uh, and I just think uh, you know everything kind of clicked for us that year as far as. Uh, when we added all those ingredients together, you know, it, it added up to a, a real good thing. Yeah, of course. Once again, John Kelly here with Tom Herr. Now, you guys are able to get through the Braves that, that in the NLCS and get to the World Series. But uh, no question, one of the better played World Series in 1982 against the Brewers, a, game, you know, a series that went the full seven games. When you look back at that season in the 1982 World Series, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? Well, uh, you know, they really jumped on us in the first game. They, they blew us out in our own ballpark, and then they got off to a lead on us in the second game. And, and you know, we came back and, and, and made a comeback and won that second game. I think that really, uh, really kind of settled us down. And, and we went up to Milwaukee and won, uh, won two out of three up there. And... Uh, you know, we were able to come home and, and uh, you know, we needed to win one out of the last two and we were able to do that in game seven. Uh, I think what, you know, what stands out is, uh, you know, Milwaukee had a, had a great team with, you know, Robin Yount and Paul Molitor, Gorman Thomas, Ben Ogilvy, uh, Ted Simmons was on that team. And, you know, they, they were good. And, uh, you know, of course, they had Molly Fenders as their closer. And, he was unavailable during the World Series because of an elbow injury, so I, I really, you know, I think obviously that uh, that was an advantage for us, and we were uh, we were healthier uh, as far as our back end of the bullpen than they were in that series. Yeah, of course. And, uh, you know, a couple of years later, you end up getting back to the World Series, and probably one of the more frustrating or you know occurrences happens with of course the Dankager call in game game six. Uh, you know, looking back at that, I'm sure that's a, that that's something that you know you you wish probably turned out for the better, right? Yeah, I mean it was uh, you know replays have shown, and uh, you know Dankinger was the first to admit after the fact that he, he blew the call. Uh, unfortunately for us, it was a, at a crucial. Uh, you know, we're dealing with a crucial first down of the ninth inning, 
And we were just, the whole wedding kind of unraveled after after that bad call, and yeah, had, had a quick call being made. You know, we really feel like uh, you know we would have been the world champions and uh, and not the Royals, but uh, you know that's that's the human element of the game, and of course nowadays that. Uh, a lot of the human element is, you know, they're trying to take that out of the game with the instant replay and so forth. And, um, but it was disappointing, you know, it was very really disappointing for us to, uh, to, you know, to feel like uh, to still get something taken away from you. So uh, that was a tough one to rebound from. Yeah, no question about it. And I tell you, you know, while I got you on the subject, you know, you look now at the the new instant replay rules and the way they've they've said, and you know, you, you just you just said yourself, it takes away the human element, which is something that uh, you know baseball traditionalists, you know, you know, are obviously in favor of. Are, are you okay with the new uh, the new replay rules, the way they're set up now? Again, John Pielli here with Tom Herter. Of course, a couple of years later, 1987, you played another Classic World Series against the Minnesota Twins this time, and you know it goes the full distance. Now, looking back, uh, you know which one do you think was more frustrating for you? Was it was it the '87 series or the '85 series? Well, I think the '87 series was 
think the 85 series was more frustrating because uh, you know, that, that was one where we kind of felt like it was taken from us, you know. And, and that's not the same Kansas City in, in any way because they, you know, Kansas City had a wonderful pitching staff and, and some great players. Obviously, they wouldn't have you know, been in that situation, but. Absolutely, and uh, you know, a couple a couple years later, or actually, you know, before the next season starts, you end up being traded over to the Minnesota Twins, the team that just beat you in the World Series. Was was there any uh, maybe I don't know a little bit of an uncomfortable feeling, a weird feeling going to the team that just beat you the year before in the World Series? Yeah, it was, it was kind of uh, different. It was, uh, you know, some good natured living going on uh, at first. And, you know, the baseball is, uh, there's, really, there's really such a, a great fraternity among baseball players that, you know, you can be uh, enemies one day and then, uh, you know, best of friends the next day traded over there. So, you know, it's funny how that stuff works out. And, uh, you know, I found that uh, my time in Minnesota was only uh, one year, but, I met some very good friends, and, and uh, it, was, uh, it was fun being a part of the Twins. You know, I, I really valued that time that I had there. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, a couple of years after that, you spent a couple of years in Philadelphia, a year with, with the Mets, and uh, finished off your career in San Francisco. Anything stand out for your, la your last couple of years in the, in the big leagues? I know you got a chance to play for a couple of different teams. Yeah, well, I mean, that was, uh, you know, late in my career, I kind of, uh, you know, it was tough. I, you know, I always felt like I wanted to finish my career in Philadelphia, and I, you know, I was led to believe that I was going to finish my career there. And, and then they, they traded me to the Mets, and that, that kind of took me, uh, took me by surprise. And, uh, you know, I was a little bit bitter about that because, you know, I felt like, uh, I felt like I had a verbal, kind of a verbal commitment from the Phillies that I was going to face my career there. And, uh, but, but like I said, you know, when you go to new teams, it's, for me, it was, uh, it was a good experience in New York. You know, I met, met some good people there, too. We became close friends with Howard Johnson and Tim Tuffle and, you know, guys like that. So it, it was fun to uh, experience that. And then... Uh, you know, I ended up finishing my career with the Giants, and that was kind of ironic because I, I grew up a, a Giants fan, so it was neat to, uh, to finish my career playing for them. Yeah, absolutely. Now, looking back all these all these years after you had a chance to, you know, a very successful, very long playing career, was there was there any one player or coach that you would have considered a real strong influence into what became of Tommy Hurd as a Major League Baseball player? Oh, 
that way so many guys, uh, so many people influence uh, really every player that, that makes us the big league. And, uh, the Cardinals, uh, at the time that I was coming up through the minor league system, they had a man named George Kissel who was, uh, he was working in the player development uh, department. And you know, George was an old, you know, old school, uh, just, Big slept and drank baseball, and you know, he was he was out on the field with us every day, and and uh, you know doing drills and talking situation of baseball, and you know so I, you know I think if I was to you know pinpoint one guy, it would be him. You know he was he was certainly a huge influence on on me learning how to play the uh, the game the cardinal way and in the right way. Now, last question I want to ask you, because, uh, you know, obviously you were part of one of the more interesting uh, lineups, you know, particularly in the 1980s, the way the lineup was set up and you had a chance to bat third a lot. Uh, for a guy that was not a, a, a big-time home run hitter, uh, was there anything different in your game that you had to do as a hitter, uh, batting third in, a, you know, such a, a power-ridden spot, or were you able to just... Uh, just, just go out there and just play your game to be suited, no matter what position in a lineup you were hitting. Yeah, you know, my, uh, you know, I was acclimated to the, the three hole because uh, in, in our particular lineup, I had uh, uh, great speed in front of me with uh, with Vince Coleman and Willie McGee, so. Uh, you know, three-hole hitter in that lineup had to be somebody that was willing to take pitches so these guys could run, number one. And number two, uh, be efficient with two strikes on them because often, oftentimes, you know, when, when you're taking pitches, you can get two strike counts on them. So I was, uh, I was very well suited to that spot because I didn't strike out much. I could still put the ball in play with two strikes. And, uh, you know, my style of hitting was, I was not afraid to take pitches. So, you know, for me, it, it, it was a natural, uh, a natural spot to be. And, you know, I think Ray recognized that. And, uh, knew that he needed, needed a patient, uh, a patient and disciplined hitter in the three hole. And, and, uh, that, you know, that's why I first, and then obviously was, with Jack Clark hitting behind me, it was a, it was a great spot to be in. Hey, no question about it. Listen, Tom, I want to thank you for having some time. Appreciate you, you giving me a couple minutes, and best of luck to you in the future. Thanks for having me. Great having a chance to catch up with Tom. And, of course, uh, if you're a Mets fan, you remember Tom playing for the Mets at the end of the 1990 season and the 91 season. And you hear one of his biggest disappointments was when he ended up playing for the Phillies, and the Phillies kind of assured him that he was going to spend the rest of his career there. And, you know, it wasn't that he – didn't like playing for the Mets, but, uh, you know, a situation where he probably thought it wasn't going to be possible, not just playing for them, but for any other team that he was comfortable kind of finishing his career in Philadelphia. And, you know, you see the way the game has changed now. I mean, you know, how many, how many different players would probably want to finish their career with a certain team and are probably deprived that opportunity. I mean, the Derek Jeters, the Mariano Rivera's, the Chipper Joneses of the world probably aren't that common. And let's be honest, they're not. 
I mean, most most players end up playing for multiple teams in their career, and particularly near the end, when the mind says, hey, I could still play, but the body and the, the ability on the field doesn't compute. And that usually leads to a team deciding that they want to part ways. And if you still feel like you could play, you end up wearing another jersey. But once again, John Pielli, Passball Show right here, brought to you by JohnPielli.com. What we're going to do is take a little bit of a break. And on the other side, we'll be back with some more things going on with Bases Empty Blog, the whole thing. So see you on the other side. I'm Karen Siaska-Zeltman from Italian Hour. When my car needs service, I take it to Jonathan's Complete Car Care. Jonathan's Complete Car Care is the best for auto repairs, tires, diagnostics, and tune-ups. You can depend on Jonathan's for the best service at prices you can afford. Give Jonathan's Complete Car Care a call. 609-601-6460. They work hard to give you the service you need. Jonathan's Complete Car Care works with many vehicles, including Mercedes-Benz, BMW, Volvo, Volkswagen, and Audi. Make Jonathan's Complete Car Care the company you keep. 609-601-6460. Call today for a free estimate or visit. Find us on the web at jonathanscompletecarcare.com and like us on Facebook and find us on Twitter. Listening to MTR Radio, powered by MTRmedia.com. Oh, yeah, welcome back. John Pielli, Passball Show, brought to you by JohnPielli.com, right here on the MTR Radio Network. Feel free to check out Bases Empty Blog, which can be found on my JohnPielli.com website, where you find the past shows as well as all the interviews I've done. And, yeah, Bases Empty Blog is pretty much. Uh, The place you want to be if you want to get premium baseball history coverage. And it's not just the stuff going on now. It's the stuff that happened 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 150 years ago. And really the whole semblance of what has become baseball history and what it is today. Check it out, of course, JohnPielli.com, Bases Empty Blog. Many are given credit to the successful seasons of Baltimore Orioles outfielder Nelson Cruz and San Francisco Giants outfielder Michael Morse. All of it is deserved because the numbers never lie. If the season ended today, Cruz would be a lock for the AL MVP award. He is currently, at the time I wrote this article, hitting a career-high 303 while leading the AL in home runs with 21, RBIs with 55, slugging percentage at 622, OPS at 996, OPS plus at 172, and total bases at 150. Signed by the Orioles to a one-year, $8 million contract, Cruz is using this season to get himself the multi-year contract he wanted this past offseason. Of course, Cruz ended up losing out in free agency due to his 2013 suspension for violations of baseball's drug treatment and prevention program. Morse, on the other hand, is following up what I feel is one of the most disappointing seasons in recent memory with a remarkable comeback season of his own. In 2013, he was traded from the Washington Nationals to the Seattle Mariners in a three-way deal to add a little power to the middle of the Mariners' batting order. Morse, who hit 31 home runs in 2011 for the Nationals and was the team's starting left fielder when they made the postseason in 2012, had a very disappointing season in 2013, to say it lightly. For the Mariners, he hit just 226, 13 home runs, 27 runs batted in in 76 games. What was worse was the fact that he OPSed just 693 in Seattle. His career OPS 
893. He was traded to the Orioles during that season, but he managed to get just three hits and 29 at-bats, none for extra bases. That brought his season average down to 215 and his OPS down to 651 for the season. Morse has already passed his RBI total for 2013 with his 42. He has 13 home runs, the total he had in 2013. It is safe to say that Morse is back as he has established himself as the Giants' missing bat for a team that is in first place in the National League Western Division. In fact, Morse to this point is sitting higher than his career averages in batting 287, on base percentage 337, slugging 547, and OPS 885. He is currently on track to meet his 2011 season, where he broke out with the Nationals. That year, he hit 303, 31 home runs, 95 RBIs with 36 doubles, while playing in a career-high 146 games. He OPSed 910 that season. If he stays on the field and continues to hit like this, he should have a season similar to his 2011 season. The question I asked at the beginning of the article, which I titled, what the seasons of Nelson Cruz and Michael Morse say about MLB's drug policy may be asked of why I'm lumping Morse in the same category or conversation with Cruz. What many people do not know is that Morse was one of the first players suspended for the league's new substance abuse policy in 2005. He was an infielder in the Mariners organization and was suspended for 10 games under the policy. But John, that was nine years ago, is what some may say. But it is a fair statement to make if you want to say he has still dabbled in PEDs. Now, if you've heard my show, The Passball Show, which you're obviously listening to now, you know I'm not the, the biggest anti-steroid guy. Now, that is mostly because I do not feel we can ever figure out which players used and which ones did not. I refuse to judge a player based on his size and physique and make assumptions without proof. However, I think teams have been burned by players who have used PEDs to get big contracts and decide to stop using after they got paid. To me, that's the biggest disgrace. It, it, it should constitute fraud, let's be honest. But unfortunately, there's no way to prove whether a player that was using stopped just after they signed a more lucrative deal. If there are no failed drug tests, though, it, it is hearsay and an opinion that cannot be proven. Either way, there has to be doubts over either player based on their performances this season. Maybe they're clean, or maybe they'll continue on their path with their new 2015 team after they sign the more lucrative contract. All I suggest is that the signing team beware of what could happen if either one of these players are using simply to get a new contract. Because once they get paid, the numbers no longer matter. Once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, right here on the MTR Radio Network. And we started the show by talking about the sad passing of Hall of Fame outfielder Tony Gwynn. Certainly at age 54, way too soon, and a guy who could certainly have been an ambassador to Major League Baseball for many, many years. Now, I titled this article, Reasons Tony Gwynn Should Be in a Category by Himself for the Years of 1940 On. Over the past 24 hours, baseball and sports shows have spent a lot of time discussing the playing career of Hall of Fame outfielder Tony Gwynn, who sadly passed away Monday at the age of 54. While much has gotten covered that I would simply be repeating, 
I still do not think Gwynn gets the respect he deserves for what he accomplished as a baseball player. Based on the amount of career hits, 3,141 to be exact, rank him 19th all time. Many baseball analysts and fans put him in a category with a series of other players. I see him in a more profound category than that. How about the best pure hitter since Ted Williams? The natural answer to that statement is to expect that it is simply an exaggeration. When somebody dies, it's natural for the living to put the recently deceased on a pedestal. While many have taken the time to remember Tony's impact on MLB as well as the city of San Diego, a lot has been said about his use of smokeless tobacco and how it likely was one of the causes of the cancer that took his life. I think it's a shame that few has look, have looked into his accomplishments and given him all the credit that he deserves. When Gwynn left this earth, he knew we knew he was one of the better pure hitters of his generation. Perhaps many of us did not acknowledge and may not know that he was a once-in-a-generation type of hitter. I will repeat, there was not a better pure hitter since the years that Ted Williams played from 1939 to 1961. The sabermetrics community has changed what is deemed good in a game of baseball. The saberers tell players, don't swing the bat, and you will be considered a good ball player. Players nowadays get rewarded for hitting 220 and striking out 150 plus times for not swinging a bat and taking more walks. They get rewarded with a contract and stay around in the major leagues just because of their on-base percentage. What many would not see in Tony Gwynn by simply looking at his stats was his hit-first mentality, which led to his high career batting average. Though he did have a keen eye of the strike zone, his thought was always to look for a pitch to hit, something a player is looked down upon in a game today. Of course, one thing that stands out about the career of Tony Gwynn is the fact that he barely struck out. In his 10,232 plate appearances, he struck out just 434 times. You had to go back to the days of Williams and Joe DiMaggio to see a player strike out at such a low rate. His career 388 on base percentage gets some credit from the sabermetrics community, but not for the popular reason. Gwynn hit himself to a career on base percentage, which happens to be the 112th in the history of Major League Baseball. Outside of his 82 walk season of 1987, his highest career walk total was 59 in 1984. He walked 760 times in his 19-year career, which was an average of about 40 times a season. Compare that to his 23 strikeouts a season. So a conclusion can be made that Gwynn hit his way on base and took pride in making contact. That is what makes his career batting average so much more impressive. Gwynn hit 338.2 for his career. That ranks him in a tie for 18th all time in Major League Baseball history. He's tied with Jesse Burkett and Napoleon Lajaway for 18th through 20th in Major League Baseball history in regards to average. That does not seem like a big deal. But look at the players who rank ahead of him. Take Ted Williams, his 344.4 average, tied for 7th all-time, out of the equation. And there is not another player that ranks in the top 20 all-time in batting average that played past the year of 1939. 
Lou Gehrig, who hit 340.1, 16th all-time, retired, of course, during the 1939 season. Six players in the top 20. Rogers Hornsby, Lefty O'Doul, Babe Ruth, Bill Terry, George Sisler, and Harry Heilman retired between the years of 1930 and 1936. Ty Cobb and Tris Speaker stopped playing after the 1928 season. Shoeless Joe Jackson was banned for life after the 1920 season. Lajoie retired after the 1916 season. Willie Keeler after 1910. Four players in the top 20 stopped playing from the years of 1900 to 1905, and that's Billy Hamilton, Burkett, Dan Brothers, and Ed Delahanty. Dave Orr and Pete Browning stopped playing before 1900. If that does not put Gwyn in a category by myself, I do not know what else will. Where is the player that compiled a 338 plus batting average since 1961? And let's be honest, other than Williams, where is the player that compiled a 338 plus batting average since 1940? That player does not exist. The problem is that we judge a baseball player's playing career based on home runs and hits to some extent. Now, because of the use of PEDs, even some of the all-time home run hitters are not getting the credit that they deserve. Perhaps the difficulty of hitting for such a high career average is something we now take for granted. Because of that, we lump Gwynn in the same category as Paul Molitor, Cal Ripken, Dave Winfield, Derek Jeter, and others who finished with around the same amount of career hits. Not to take anything away from any of those other Hall of Fame players, but Gwynn, in my opinion, is in a category by himself. You could say that hitters like Rod Carew, who hit 327.9, and Wade Boggs, who hit 327.8, should get nearly as much credit as Gwynn, but in my opinion, the prior four mentioned are not nearly the accomplished hitter that Tony Gwynn was. Don't forget to tune in to the second hour, where I'm going to talk a little more about Tony Gwynn, this time with Mike Sanfilippo from the MTR Morning Throwdown, which can be heard on the MTR Radio Network Monday through Thursday. And, uh, you know, we had an interesting segment where I started talking about some of the things that Tony Gwynn accomplished. And I, I touched on a couple things that I mentioned in my article, which I just spoke about. But I think it's more of an elaboration about what was a great career in Major League Baseball history and how we just look at it as another Hall of Famer that has passed away. And Ted Williams, the year he died. Um, I think you could go back and look at what happened in Major League Baseball history and say, hey, one of the greatest hitters ever has passed away. Unfortunately, even though Tony Gwynn left us at such a young age, I don't think we get the same perspective or the same looking back at it as one of the great hitters in Major League Baseball having passed away. And it's unfortunate because not only did he hit 338 for his career, but there were few others like I said, from the years of 1940 on, outside of Ted Williams, he was the only other one that was probably as great of a hitter in regards to understanding the art of hitting, being able to hit all fields, and just simply being an artist with a bat, a doctor with a bat. And honestly, if you were going to give a doctorate in Major League Baseball to hitting, 
Ted Williams would have one, of course, and you could probably mention some of the other players that played before Ted Williams, but Tony Gwynn would be right up there. And if you if you followed your history and you understand, uh, Gwynn was a very uh, a very big Ted Williams fan. Spent a lot of time talking to him, reading his books, and you know understanding his art of hitting. So he was kind of a Ted Williams disciple, and and he kind of seeked them. He looked and said, "Listen, this is the greatest hitter the game has ever seen." Let me pick his brain and let me see what I can learn to become one of the best hitters that I could be. And Tony Gwynn and Ted Williams, two of the game's best pure hitters. And I don't think there's any doubt of that in my mind. Once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to do is talk about another player that passed away during this past week. And, you know, sadly enough, this was a guy that I, I had been in touch with. And I was actually at his house down in Florida. And that's former Major League pitcher Billy McCool. And he pitched with the Reds, Padres, and Cardinals from 1964 to 1970. And he passed away on June 8th at the age of 69. Over the course of his career, he won 32 games from 64 to 70, pitched in 292 games, and had 58 saves in his career. He came to the majors at age 19 in 1964, where he appeared in 40 games for the Reds. McCool was taken by the San Diego Padres in a 1968 expansion draft, so he was an original Padre. In 1969, just prior to the 1970 season, he was traded to the Cardinals, where he pitched in 18 games. In the offseason of 1970, which would be his last in the majors, he was traded to the Boston Red Sox and later the Kansas City Royals, but did not appear in a, in a game in the majors for either team. He is the author of the Billy McCool Pitching Digest, a guide to effective baseball pitching, published in 1977. He had lived in uh, Summerfield, Florida until his death on June 8th. And he was also present in 2013 for his induction into the Indiana Baseball Hall of Fame and is also a graduate of Lawrenceburg High School. And of course, if you're a fan of the past ball show, you know, well, we also take the show on the road and we go and we try to meet up with different players and stuff like that. And it's, you know, it's a shame that, you know, we I, we didn't get a chance to speak with Billy McCool. And uh, of course, the timing probably was not right as he was probably in some ill health which, uh, of course, uh, ends up taking his life at the age of 69. But once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network, as we finish up this first hour. And, of course, we've talked a little bit about some sad baseball passings, but I want to finish off the hour by talking about something a little more upbeat. And talking about upbeat, you could talk about a team in Houston, the Astros, a team that has been on rebuild mode for a long time, is currently sitting there at 32 and 40. And they've gotten some uh, rejuvenation from some of their youth. George Springer is up. Uh, John Singleton is up. These are a couple of the younger players that they're looking to build their team around. And this team has had some success. Uh, like I said, only eight games under 500 after a couple really down seasons under new manager Bo Porter. Um, I don't I don't know what you would say this team is looking to be in the future. But let's be honest. I mean, they've gotten some very good starting pitching. Uh, Jared Kozar, 24-year-old right-hander, looks like he's going to be the real deal. Uh, Dallas Kuchel, a left-hander who struggled last year, has pitched very well this year. He's got eight wins. Uh, Scott Feldman is, has done a good job. Brad Peacock has been up and down between the bullpen and the rotation. But Colin McHugh, former Met farmhand, a guy who was with the Rockies last year, looked like he was getting himself off the 40-man roster. 
has made 10 starts and has gone 4-4 four and four with a 3-0-3 ERA for the Astros. So you're looking at a team right now that probably isn't looking to compete with those mighty teams in the AL West. They're, they're not competing with the Angels or the Athletics or the Mariners or the Rangers yet. But but I think they could, they could turn some heads in the second half of the season. I mean, they have a legitimate right fielder in George Springer. He's got 12 home runs. Uh, Dexter Fowler is a veteran player. I thought from the beginning was a very good trade from the Astros' perspective. And a lot of people knocked the Rockies for what they got in return. And if you listen to previous PBSs, you've heard me talk about the uh, the other guys, Brandon Barnes and Jordan Lyles, uh, may, may not be too bad. So I don't think that was a really bad trade for either team. Uh, Fowler was struggling a little bit. He's got his average up to 286. Matt Dominguez, a guy who came up through the Miami Marlins organization, uh, has established himself as the everyday third baseman. And, of course, they got Carlos Correa, the number one draft pick of a couple years ago, who was right on the verge of making his major league debut and becoming a top player for the Astros. So I think with uh, the struggles over the last couple of years, and you would say the Houston Astros are probably the prime example of the team that went about the rebuild, the complete way, the complete five-year plan. You compare it to what, say, the Mets have done. Well, they've taken about the same amount of time, but they probably didn't bottom out the way the Astros were. And the Astros have had three straight number one picks for a reason. They they have stunk on the baseball field for several years. And this took the time, obviously, where they had the veteran players that they ended up trading and letting go and bringing in a bunch of journeyman type of players that weren't going to command a lot of salary. And obviously, when you don't pay players and you're paying players that are probably sub-major league par, you end up getting those type of results. And it's what the Astros have had over the last couple seasons. Now, the guess is, and I would take a poll, you know, tweet at me at John underscore Pielli. Do you think the Astros will finish with the worst record in Major League Baseball this year? They have over the last three seasons. I don't think there's any doubt about it. But are there other teams that could finish with a record where the Astros are or worse? Now, currently, the Chicago Cubs have a worse record than the Houston Astros. The New York Mets are right around the same place as the Houston Astros, the Arizona Diamondbacks, the San Diego Padres. So you're looking at three teams, of course, the Tampa Bay Rays, who right now sit with the worst record in all of Major League Baseball at a, uh, un, almost unfathomable 16 games under 500. Maybe the Astros are able to get through. And maybe they don't have the worst record in Major League Baseball. And I think the good thing you could say about it is one this, once this starts trending in the right direction, I think the Astros are going to start to be a team that's worth, you know, reckoning with. Once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Big thanks to my guest in the first hour, former Major League second baseman Tommy Herr. Um, stay tuned in the second hour. I got an interview that I've played, a long interview, with former Major League outfielder Jay Johnstone, who, of course, played for the Dodgers and the Angels and the Yankees and the Phillies, amongst several teams, but was also known as one of the game's top pranksters. So we'll get into that in the second hour. Lots more stuff going on. Passball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com. See you in five minutes. Rock over London. Rock on Chicago. Heartbeat of America. Yesterday's Chevrolet.